You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. I have Dr. Jonathan Clayton. Uh, he's an assistant professor at University of Nebraska, and then we're going to be talking about post-microbiome interactions in humans and non-human primates, which is super fascinating. So, uh, Jonathan, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, I saw that you uh, your moniker is the Monkey Doc. What? Why is that, by the way? Yeah, so um, I guess that came to be uh, over a long, a long history, really. So my my interest has always been um, in uh, in non-human primates for for a very long time, and ultimately I decided to go to uh, to veterinary school uh, initially, and, and did finish veterinary school. But um, that kind of came to be during veterinary school because my um, my passion, even once I entered veterinary medicine and primates, is is obviously well. In the context of veterinary medicine, it's very specific. Um, so it came to be kind of that way. It would just sort of kind of came together during veterinary school and just kind of kept it ever since and got like, you know, a website and things like that and just kind of used it as a, I don't know, I guess a small trademark, if you will. You, you said you're studying uh, <clears throat> host microbiome interactions? Uh, yes, sir. So uh, I've heard the term uh, holobiont put around or superorganism or metaorganism. Do you, do you see it uh, as a host uh, host and microbiome interaction or do you see it as a necessary whole you know meaning that our microbial constituent makes a creature what it is and without it there is no creature or do you see it as really two separate things that are interacting sure you know that's a very very interesting question so do you mean in terms of like uh, you can't have one without the other or yes exactly right right you yeah, can so- have one but barely alive without the other sure yeah so i, I would i would yeah i would argue that um, you can't really have one without the other. I mean, the, and I can explain why I think that, but one, one exception would be, uh, so there's these things called notobiotic mice or germ-free mice. So germ-free mice are essentially the, the, the purpose of them in, in the context of research are they're used for uh, various different experiments, particularly when you're looking at the microbiota. And the reason for that is, is because, you know, we have other mouse models that we've controlled genetically, like, uh, you know, for certain types of cancer or whatever it is that you're studying. But in terms of microbes, um, we have so many microbes in, in our guts and on our bodies, but especially in our guts, that it's a very complex system to study, particularly if you're looking for to some type of phenotype, let's say, like what bacteria causes what. And so, um, so germ-free mice, the point is, is that germ-free organisms or, or things that are basically reared, reared in, you know, um, basically in sterility 
they don't do very well. They do live um, for a period of time, but they, but, but, but not really their immune systems don't develop and so on and so forth. And then when you try to take that to larger organisms, like for example, there are germ-free pigs, but they also don't do very well. So there's not very, there's, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that um, we, we need our microbes. So, and, and the thing is, is that we've, we know that we've basically co-evolved with microbes, but it's definitely a paradigm shift in thinking about things. But I, I certainly believe that without our microbes, um, you know, we wouldn't have, our immune systems wouldn't be primed. We wouldn't be able to digest many of the foods that we consume. Um, and then a, a whole host of, uh, we wouldn't be able to protect from pathogens. So they basically uh, do it all. And then another uh, big thing, I mean, there's, I don't want to throw out a statistic or a number, but their uh, microbes are also extremely important for um, drug metabolism. So many of the uh, many of the drugs that we take actually require uh, microbes to actually turn those drugs into their active component. Um, have you observed, or you know, people talk about the microbiome? They always talk about the gut microbiome. But you know, spoken to a number of scientists. I mean, just one today, they said the pancreas has its own microbiome. Tumors that may form in the pancreas have their own microbiome. It seems like you know, an entire monkey or an entire person, every part of them is covered in different microbial colonies. Every organ, every part of their skin, the whole creature throughout right. is as microbial constituents. I mean, is that what you're thinking or have you not seen that? Yeah, no, I mean, that's a very good, uh, another very good question. Very good point. Yes, I do believe that, um, that, that basically we have these microbial communities that are site specific, if you will. So, there was a the, the famous uh, human microbiome project kind of really elegantly showed that that you know they they were looking at 18 different body sites but they showed that amongst those various different body sites even if let's say you go from the armpit to the elbow it's a very different uh, microbial community structure um, in in those two micro environments so even even on the skin let's say for example so and and in 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 terms of the i mean the, the um I'm not a cancer biologist and I don't, uh, don't really work with, with tumors, but I've, uh, I've worked with people that do. And, and I've, um, and I've heard, uh, you know, a number of number of talks that talk about the microbiome of the tumor environment, as you said. So that is a promising area for, uh, for cancer research that, um, that understanding that when a tumor forms, it actually does have its own unique, uh, microbiome. So again, the association between potentially between, and my, the microbes and, and the either development of cancer or, or whether it's a scalpel. But yes, uh, in, in short, I do, uh, I do agree that um, microbiomes are, are site specific. So in studying the host microbiome interactions, what are you, what are you studying? What have you been observing? Right. So um, no, our primarily uh, our research has focused on host micro uh, host microbiome interactions in, in humans and non-human primates. Uh, some of the work that we have done previously are one of the sort of landmark things um, that that we studied and, and found out um, was that primate dysbiosis, so dysbiosis meaning deviation from normal. So this is an abnormal microbial community structure, and it's basically just a, a, a term for abnormal and, and usually associated with being a with an unhealthy microbiome. So we discovered that that one of those things is that that's driven by a loss of in, in primates, at least bacterial diversity. And that is not groundbreaking or anything, but we, we showed that in both wild and in captive primates. But specifically, um, we showed that as you move from a um, we use basically non-human primates as a model system uh, for studying the effects of immigration and lifestyle disruption on the human gut microbiome. So 
basically what we did is we took two model different non-human primate species both in the captive and in wild so these were red shank dukes and mantled howlers and it's not as important that um what, what species they are but basically what we showed was that these different primate species have very distinctive signature microbiota in the wild but once they're in a captive setting they actually start to lose their native microbes and become colonized with um with bacterial species that are dominant in the human microbiome. So in our particular study, these wild, these wild monkeys, these wild primates didn't have any of these bacterial taxa that are dominant um, or genera that are dominant in the, in the human gut microbiome. But all of a sudden when you um, under captive settings, they basically have a drastically different microbiome and that microbiome much closely, more closely resembles humans than their wild counterparts. And that's why we titled the, the paper captivity humanizes the primate microbiome. That's one of the things that we've huh. been, Yeah. What, what have you found that does that change them phenotypically? Like, I don't know, has anyone even tried to correlate that? Uh, correlate it with, um, you know, how, so when the when a primate is now captive, you said their microbiome changes over, like over what period of time does that happen? And then what happens to the uh, the captive? I mean, does it change its behavior dramatically? Does it change its right. you know its outer appearance, uh, gene expression? Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's an excellent question, and that's really the the next set of, or at least for for some of the next set of experiments that that need to be done. I mean, some of the challenges are. Um, for, for this type of work is that a lot of these, you know, if you take, for example, now we're not bringing in wild primates really into zoos and stuff like that, not wild primates. Um, so you, you work with, let's say a sanctuary or something like that. So there's just a lot of infrastructure and things that set up to basically, um, basically catch, for example, that moment when that, that primate, let's say goes to a sanctuary or goes to a captive setting, because really what, what we have seen is that, uh, or what we what we do know, or at least we think, is that the the change happens relatively uh, relatively rapidly. So whether that's diet, whether it's environment, whatever it is. But it, for example, these howler monkeys in Costa Rica, this sanctuary is is uh, very proximately located to actually where the wild individuals are. But what we see is that we actually had one individual, interestingly enough, that. Um, that we sampled and it didn't cluster with the other captive individuals. And when we went back and looked at the data, what we determined was that individual had only been in captivity for two days. So it's most likely that in a week or two weeks, and we don't know the exact timeline, that microbiome would have shifted to be with those other captive individuals. So the point being that even in a, in a sanctuary that is borders the, the, the wild individuals, um, they still, their microbiomes change rapidly once, once they enter a captive environment. But yes, we are trying to do studies to try to, to try to basically zoom in on that and try to understand one, what the timeline is, like how quickly does it change? And then second of all, um, you know, what does that mean um, in, in terms of, let's say, health or whatever? I mean, we, we make the assumption that wild primates are, I guess, if you will, healthier than, than captive ones. I mean, that's not necessarily true, but in certain species that, that are very difficult to keep under captive conditions, you know, which was the case in, in, in this particular study, we can kind of allude to that. We don't say that, you know, it's not a smoking gun and we can't say that for 100%. Um, and it's correlative, but uh, but we, we, we assume that's the case because we know under captive conditions, these, these, for example, these primate species, they, they don't thrive to, per se. So maybe a big component of them not thriving is that their microbiome fraction changes to the point where it doesn't work well with their, with their body. It's so right. different to them, you know, that right. causes problems. 
Right, right, exactly. Um, yeah, you know, and and then it also, you know, that yeah, no, that's exactly right. And and it could be too. It, it may be different if you were, example, transitioning, a, you know, a primate from a wild setting to a captive setting versus an individual that was born in a captive setting, and that's all it, it you know, that's all it ever known. There, there may be something to that too. And again, we just because uh, you know, there's a lot of logistical and study design things that, but we are working to try to, um, to set their studies up. And we, we do have a, a, some stuff running right now where we're, we're going to, we're trying to investigate that actually. Have you tried to release any primates into the wild, tag them and capture them a month later? Yeah. See I mean, if the uh, microbiome went back. Right. Another great question. Uh, no, we have not, but again, that's, that's something that we would like to do. Most likely we would do it. Um, most likely we would do it non-invasively in the sense that we would track them after they're released and see what their microbiome looks like, but then, then rebringing them back in. That's an excellent question. We have not done that. Um, that would probably be more opportunistic because in those particular cases, you know, uh, we, we, we'd have to have good justification and good reasoning for doing that. Um, and then of course, a lot of permits and various things like that, but, but, but it's an excellent question. And it's, uh, I think the important thing, uh, what you're highlighting is that it's also a basic science question. It's a, it's a question that, um, we, we don't know. And part of that is just, you know, a, a logistical issue, which again, we're, um, we're trying to, to work through. So when you talk about host microbiome interaction, what kind of interactions have you looked at or characterized? Yeah. So uh, again, we've been focused on um, uh, we've been focused on the relationship with diet uh, and, and in particular fiber content on the microbiome. That's 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 one area of focus. Another area of focus that um, the lab is, is is currently for my lab is currently focused on um, is looking at the gut gut brain axis or the gut microbiota brain axis. So we um, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that there's a very uh, strong relationship between um, we know there's a relationship between the gut and the brain because we know that how, how innervated uh, the gut is in, in terms of um, it's, it's very, there's a, there's a lot of nerves that, you know, and particularly the vagus nerve, which is a cranial nerve. So we know that um, bacteria can produce neuropeptides, things like serotonin, for example. So there's a lot of uh, interest in, um, in, in this particular area of research. And so we're using a, uh, a marmoset model that's a small new world primate to, to investigate this uh, in further. So we're trying to understand the relationship between stress and the microbiome. So how, when, when an individual is stressed, how, how does that, how does that uh, change their microbiome? And then if we, and then when an individual has dysbiosis, does that uh, result in, in an individual being uh, stressed? Well, how do you define diversity? Does that mean that certain species are not present or that certain species come to dominate? disproportionately and same thing with dysbiosis what is dysbiosis and yeah exactly yeah how do you know a, if you don't compare to normal you know so that's that's another uh lot in that but another really great question so how do you define dysbiosis i mean again you're exactly right in order to do that you have to know what normal is for sure so i 100 percent uh agree with you there i think that and that's why studies that are um not basic at all but studies that are characterization based in the sense of you know we take you know, so-and-so healthy individuals, we, we follow them for this period of time. We really drill in and look at exactly what are they eating? How are they living? What are they doing? They're, again, very hard studies to perform because they're very, uh, you know, you have to have a lot of compliance, obviously. But uh, those are some of the studies that we're starting to do in, in the monkeys too. But but these are these are what exactly what you're saying. These are what gives you that baseline data then, then to be able to determine, uh, you know, where you, what's abnormal. And the other 
the other piece of, of that that's important, and actually this was one of the reasons why the Human Microbiome Project was so important, is because one of the things that the Human Microbiome Project showed is that there's a lot of individual to individual variation. And so, you know, when in that particular study, most the, the basically the initial cohort of individuals that they recruited were healthy individuals. So that was one of the criteria. So these healthy individuals, when you just look at this, um, this, this set of healthy individuals between individual um, inter-individual variation or whatever is super high. So what for, so to put the, you know, in a nutshell, basically one individual's um, you know, microbiome that's healthy, another individual's microbiome is healthy, but they're very different. So then it's hard to just basically take that, compile that and say, this is what a healthy microbiome is. Um, it, it, it more and more evidence is suggesting that it's very host specific and then and in ind- individually specific. Well, I'm sure it's host specific, but there has to be hallmarks beyond just a blanket word diversity. Oh, I see exactly. Tell you what's going I see what on, you yeah. mean. Yeah, sorry, I missed that part of the, the question. No, absolutely. Um, so, uh, I think I think a, f- a few things there. One is yes, you're you're absolutely correct. Diversity has been used uh, as a marker for for health. Um, I think that's because you know it's one of the, the the few things that was that was present, and also came from studies like where we're looking at um, healthy versus healthy versus unhealthy individuals, and the the healthy individuals had a lot more higher diversity than than the unhealthy individuals. But but again, it's not that's absolutely obviously not perfect, and and that doesn't it, you know because one of the one of the areas that is getting pushed to now is looking at metabolism, the metabolism. So for example, let's say we have uh, ten different species of, of a bacterium, but those bacteria all perform the same function. The fact that you have those 10 different species, it may matter, it may matter, it may matter um, quantitatively how much all those collectively are in terms of numbers. So numbers definitely matter, but we're talking about diversity. We're not talking so much about numbers. We're talking about numbers of different taxa. So I agree with you that that has been used as a marker, but that may not be perfect because really it's more about what the, what the bugs are actually doing in the gut. And if you have a number of bugs that are performing the same function, it really doesn't matter how many different bugs. It's more about what the bugs are doing. Does that make sense? Well, it does. But I mean, for instance, I wanted to do this experiment on myself. It's uh, sample my oral microbiome a couple of hundred times over the next year before I eat, after I eat, when I wake up, when I go to sleep, when I'm healthy, when I get sick. And at least that takes away the variation, you know, between me and other individuals. And I can profile my microbiome maybe and see what does it look like when it's healthy and then when I get sick or under different conditions, what's it doing? Right, and then without even maybe that would give me a clue, or you know, do this for one of the primates. Maybe that would give you a clue as to what the bacteria are doing, because you'd see their absence or presence, or you know, waxing or waning under different you know physiological conditions. Oh, that's absolutely correct. Like you're dead on, and I think you uh, you alluded to maybe what I didn't articulate very well, but that's the um, the fact that we need these longitudinal types of studies. So, for example, sampling at you know one or two time points, particularly when you have a, a lot of or just even one time point, is really not all that useful. I mean, I guess it definitely depends on the situation, depends on the study design, it depends on the um, and, and a lot of this is obviously opportunistic and in, in all in most microbiome studies, you know, um, but. But exactly right. You have to have a longitudinal component because you have to be able to then, you know, determine one, you have to be able to basically get rid of the noise. So you have to understand that the microbiome, while it is relatively static, it's also dynamic. And so it's going to change over time, no matter what. And so in order to then determine whether or not, let's say it's uh, your, your change 
uh, is because you took an antibiotic or it's just n- normal change, you, you have to have those um, multiple, multiple time points as you're referring to in order to, to elucidate that. So yeah, I agree hundred percent that that is the way that you get to that, to the answer to that question. Are you able to do these? I mean, even if they weren't very longitudinal, mm-hmm. why not take, you know, I don't know, three marmosets and sample them, you know, over the next week under uh, 10 different conditions. Yeah, no, that's not- maybe they'll give you a quick view of how much change is there. Isn't it? That's absolutely what we're we're working on that right now, and that that that's a great point because um, even for for example, in the particular colony that we're working with, we're we're, we're planning to do that with every single individual. So very micro scale uh, time points, and and follow these individuals to just have that baseline knowledge of what is um, you know how does it change, what's normal, what's abnormal, um, and obviously that that's going to help us when we ask all these other additional questions. You know what's interesting is is I wonder how the um the host and its microbial constituents shape your immune system, you know, because the immune system, for instance, already is a, it's a collective, it's like a police force, at least for our somatic cells. But I have the suspicion that it's also informed by our microbial constituent and the immune system is like a crossover between the two, you know, the, the microbes are inside of us so they, they can live and thrive where they're host, right. essentially. So I would think the immune system is very important to them in maintaining that their environment so they would play a part in it and communicate right. with it right modulate it yeah 100% 100% agree i mean obviously um when you're talking about the immune system and you talk about the microbiome both of these types of data are i mean complex you know pieces of data because there's a lot of there's a lot of things at play but um but but absolutely agree that um that they're and, and, and this is, you know, every accepted that the microbiome and the immune system are intimately leaked. And, and, and in particular, uh, when you're, you know, when you're younger, even more so when you're born. Um, so, you know, we, we know that, for example, um, not work I've done personally, but, you know, as you come through the birth canal, that's your first exposure to microbes and that's your first on the way out. And, and then and then you're exposed to the outside world. And so then from there and we know that if you're born via vaginal or cesarean section, there's a there's a very big difference in what your microbial community structure looks like. I think in terms of um, saying that, that there's a relationship then with that and then disease, I, I'm, I, I don't, again, not work I'm doing personally. I don't think we're necessarily there yet because a lot of these, there are two, two things that you really need to do in order to, to determine that. One, you have to track these individuals basically for a very long time, right? You have to see if at some point in their life, they develop such disease. And obviously that's extremely difficult to do. So um, again, uh, hard data to, to get, but I think um, people are trying to do this because you're exactly right. It, it's uh, people believe that um, that particularly when we're talking about uh, issues with inflammation in the, in the immune system are really important. I mean, when we look at since the 1950s, we, basically we've seen this, uh, this steady increase um, in diseases that are of chronic origin diseases that have an inflammatory component. Um, so now we're now now we're treating a lot more chronic diseases than we are, you know, are those one pathogen diseases that were, you know, being treated 50, 60 years ago. I got you. So what do you, um, I don't know, how would you figure out, for instance, the functionality of the different microbes in, you know, a creature's microbiome? Like how would you tease that out? Yeah. So two ways. Uh, so we have, we have multiple different types of sequencing that we can do. So 
One of the types of sequencing that we can do is 16S sequencing. So this is a, a ribosomal RNA gene. Um, and what that basically means is that it's highly conserved amongst bacteria. This is not going to tell us anything about function, but this is the way this is the way kind of microbiome started. It's still used. It's still important, but uh, certainly not as powerful as shotgun sequencing or metagenomic sequencing. Um, with 16S sequencing, basically, it will tell us who's there. Uh, the, the two issues, one issue is that it doesn't tell us what they're doing, number one. Number two, it, it, in terms of resolution, it only gets us down to genus level uh, if we're lucky. Um, the thing about bacteria is that species matter and then even strain matters. And so using metagenomic sequencing will do two things, it, particularly if the sequencing is deep enough. So this, this is shotgun sequencing. Um, this type of sequencing will basically give you that resolution down to species or strain level in, in, in some instances, but it also tells you about microbial function. Um, so uh, that, that and, and, and then the other way is that we can use metabolomics, which is, but which is basically telling you what metabolites are being produced by the microbiome. Yeah, have any microbes been profiled to the max? You know, what is it? You know, I don't know. E. coli. What does it eat? What's yeah. its genes? What does yeah. it produce in terms of metabolites? Yeah. You know, it's on and on and on. Like that. <sighs> I would think that would be very important because you could find who's there in gory detail. But then, mm -hmm. okay, how do you know what they're doing? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. There, th that's certainly been done with, um, with you know, a, f a fair number of, of bacteria. I think the thing is, is that if you think back, you know, when you're talking about um, traditional, traditional microbiology, so culture-based techniques, a lot of these bacteria that have been worked with and characterized so extensively, like E. coli, for example, um, you know, they grow aerobically. And so you, you don't, Yes, you have to figure out what type of nutrients they, they need and all these things to be able to go and, and study them in great detail. But it's a lot easier than a lot of the microbes that are in our guts because those microbes are anaerobic in nature and you need very, very special equipment um, in order to, to study those bugs. But you make a very good point, and I think that's the direction that the microbiome research is heading, at least I, I certainly hope so. Our lab is, 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 is in that direction, is that you know, we, we have to, we have to characterize these bugs. So yes, we can, um, in, in order to do that, to fully characterize them, we have to culture them. So, you know, the, the, we can look at them, um, taxonomically, we can look at what their, their function is, but to really truly understand, um, let's say like we're screening for probiotic targets or whatever, we, we really have to, to culture these, these bugs. And the other thing about that is, is that, uh, databases. So databases are a huge issue. So if I go in, um, today and in, in a year from now, and I, uh, blast something against the database. So I take a, a DNA sequence and I'm trying to figure out what that organism is. You know, many times you'll, it'll come back with, you have, you know, this percentage of unknown. And maybe if you redid that a year from now, because new, new things have been added to the database, you would be able to determine what that unknown, what actual species, let's say that is. But in order to do that, that bacterium would have had to been cultured, um, would have had to been, its DNA would have had to been sequenced fully. And then you know, so that so that it can be compared to all the other species to make sure that it is a you know novel organism. But then, what if the uh, you know I don't know bacteria A and bacteria B act in one way separately when cultured, but when they're together, one feeds the other, which feeds another, which feeds another. You know. <laughs> oh man, that's that's a that's a very 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 great question and a very good point. I mean, that's that's obviously a limitation of you know, in vitro work, uh, for sure. But, um, and that's, and that's, and that's, a, a, you make a very good point. That's another thing that's complex about studying the microbiome, because you're not talking about, uh, 
you know, one particular thing, you're talking about something in the context of everything else. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's the, you know, there are different types of cold culture, uh, co-culture systems. There's instances where people are working, you know, one in one out. So you're, you're adding, you know, various different species and, and trying to understand the interaction, but this is work just like, it's like people are still studying E. coli like they like they always have because there's still so much to learn and that's just one bacterium. So um, I feel like we're it, 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 it will take a lot of time, but there'll have to be a lot of people working in that area to to elucidate exactly yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, you know, like you think about, um, I don't know, the skin microbiome, the stuff that's there is in a constantly changing, very adversarial environment versus, I don't know, let's say the microbiome around my heart or something or you know, in my brain, mm-hmm. inside the blood-brain barrier. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if you if you looked at the different species of microbes in those two arenas, you know, they would. I, I would think they would be radically different. But then now I wonder, you know, what's the what if we had I had the same microbe, microbe X, in both areas, and it, it had the same microbe in both areas. It may act so differently based on its environment that I don't know. It it would have abilities that it wouldn't have if it's in one area versus another. You know what I mean? Like. Again, if I had microbe X and it was on my skin, but it was in a very protected area of my body, it may exist in both areas, but it may have very different roles and function and gene expression. And I don't even know. It's crazy. I mean, that's absolutely correct. And that, there's, 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 lot, there's, there's numerous examples of, of exactly what you're talking about. I mean, you take Staph aureus, for example. I mean, if you took, um, I mean, Staph, you know, is inherently on your, on, on, on your skin. You get a cut and it's, in a, in a different part, then, you know, it results in infection or there's a number of different bacteria, you know, uh, species that let's say, for example, a, a really good example actually is E. coli. That's probably the, a real, uh, landmark example or, or whatever. Um, because E. coli is from the gut. We know it's from the, from the, from the colon. Um, but it's the number one cause of urinary tract infections in women. So yeah. E. coli is not supposed to be in the urinary tract. It's absolutely fine. As long as it's not obviously, a um, a, a strain that's pathogenic, but it's a very normal part of the flora. That's why it's so easy to culture. Um, yeah. But, but we, and we know that um, and, and, and it's, there's nothing wrong with it. It's absolutely fine. But uh, once it, once it um, is in the urinary tract, urinary tract, it causes infection. So that's an example of exactly what you're talking about. I don't know how this is going to be figured out. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to take a long time and a lot of, a lot of people. And, and I, the one thing that is beautiful about microbiome research is it's highly collaborative. And the reason why is because it has to be, I mean, you have microbiologists, you have, um, you have, you know, physicians, you have veterinarians, you have, um, you have, you know, microbial ecologists, you have modelers, you have, you know, you have chemists, you have, there's, so many because there's so many things that that are going on, and you really have to have this this breadth of of I guess expertise or or interest or knowledge or whatever in order to really kind of solve these complex problems. So it, inherently, it becomes a, a collaborative science, which is one of the things I like about it. But what does that tell you about the capabilities of of even microbes, of bacteria, you know, of viruses, of even their behavior is so diverse; they act differently, and they're they're you know, altered by their environment and they have different things that they prefer to eat and will eat and different things that they express and they interact differently with different neighbors. I mean, it, that behavior is so complex, even at that level, it's just, it's amazing. You have a new respect for bacteria. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's why there's people that, um, there, there are people that try to 
basically model this uh, using mathematical models and stuff to pr prediction algorithms to try to predict what would happen, you know, when you have these three species together, but, you know, but, or, and then you are four or five, but each time you, even when you're in your, obviously this is a model, but even when you're modeling this, like, think about how many, like exactly what you just talked about, how many factors you have to try to account for. And, and, and these, these, even these models themselves are going to take years and years and years to refine because um, there's just, it's, it's so complex. And every time you add a new thing to the system, it's a whole nother level of uh, complexity and change and, and, you know, potential outcome. So what's, you know, this, it's hard not to feel overwhelmed. What, what's going to be your focus? How do you think you're going to add your piece to the puzzle? What do you think is the most important work that you're going to be doing or are doing? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in, in, you know, we're kind of, uh, the lab ha has, has, has a few different directions. So, um, one of the things that we're, we're focused on is using non-human primates as a, as a model for studying the effects of variations in, in diet, um, as well as other lifestyle factors, uh, on the microbiome and metabolic health. That's, that's one thing we're working on. Um, but, but, you know, and so, and one of the ways that we're doing that is using this, this marmoset model, because, you know, having a, having a, a model that we can use, um, and uh, everything that we're doing is, is non-invasive. And so, um, we're, we're, because we're using fecal materials, so it, it works out re really well in that regard, but having, uh, it's the same with mice, so, you know, having a model that you can use, um, gives you a lot of, of, of ability to, to, to look at stuff as opposed to, let's say, using wild animals. But at the same time, there's, there's a lot of stuff that can be garnished from that. So another thing that we're, that we're working on really passionate about is the uh, primate microbiome project, something that um, started in um, a, a while ago with, with my, my collaborators at um, University of Minnesota, Northwestern University, University of Colorado Boulder, University of um, California, San Diego, and then University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. So uh, this project is um, the main main goal of this project is that we want to um, basically to develop a systematic map of what the um, of, what, of what the microbes are uh, uh, basically across the the primate taxonomy. So, and, and part of the reason for that is because um, we we want to collect and sequence the the gut microbial communities from from primates covering the entire tree of primate evolution i mean in in, in, in the, we have a couple different areas of, of impact health evolution behavior and conservation one of the things to me that's really important and particularly when i think about from, from a veterinary perspective and when i think about captive animal health and when i think about zoos and when i think about extinction is that um two things one we think about extinction most of the time on a uh macro scale and so in something that we can see but we we forget that microbes are highly host specific and so uh, when we're losing, let's say, a species or even, let's say, a species in a, in a, in a particular environment, let's say pristine forest versus, you know, uh, degraded forest. And, and we know from, from studies that a lot of times in those instances, those two, let's say, same species of, of, of primate or, or whatever species uh, have different microbiomes. And so we know that we would assume that that pristine environment, you know, once, once that's gone, yes, we may, let's say we lose that, that species, that um, host or whatever, but, but we're also losing, likely losing bacteria that were very specific also to that micro environment. And so one of, the right. things, one, of the, one of the things that we want to do with this project and why we want to understand what the microbiome looks like across basically um, all these primates is, is for conservation purposes. So we want to under, we want to 
we want to be able to, to help these individuals, for example, if they find themselves in a tricky spot or in captivity. Um, and we know, you know, in accepting the fact that the, that the, how important the microbiome is for the maintenance of health, um, we, we want to both characterize these bugs and then also starting to, to culture these bugs so that we will, you know, be able to, to, to both understand them better, but then also, and so they're available to science, but also so that we can, um, we can use them uh, to, for, for health purposes. And, so that's one of the, that's the, another big uh, aim in the lab. And that's a highly, obviously a highly collaborative project. Um, and then the, the, the last thing that we're working on, uh, which we're, we're really excited about is we're um, trying to explore detailed causal mechanisms for microbiome modulated metabolic diseases. So uh, as well as neurological behavioral diseases. So specifically stress. So we're very interested in the gut brain axis um, and we're, we're trying to understand uh, the link between stress and other neuropsychiatric diseases in, in the microbiome. Um, and we're doing that using uh, like next generation sequencing, anaerobic, aerobic culture, uh, germ-free models, and as well as that, that, that marmoset model. Yeah, I was just thinking, you know, it'd be interesting, you're looking at diet. Why don't you try to see if you can um, feed some of the marmosets you have in captivity a wild diet where the only food is, is not just variations of, you know, human touch stuff, but anything they'd eat in the wild and see what happens to their microbiome then does it go back to resemble their wild environment or does it mm -hmm. form this third type uh you know great microbiome? Point. what happens that's a great point that's a very very great point yeah i mean in some uh, so i absolutely agree with you uh, on that and i liked what you said about does it does it uh, revert back to the original or does it or is it something completely new or that that was that was really cool because i agree with you like you have a you have a couple different scenarios there and i think um one of the things that you think about is that uh how does it for example one of the questions that i have is that how long does it take and do we have extinction events in the gut so in other words you have a monkey in captivity yes it may have a different microbiome but do you have some of these species still residual or in very low numbers that let's say with the right substrate, you, you, they could re rebloom or they, you, you would have, you, you could basically increase their numbers or are they completely extinct? So you basically have to, they have to be uh, re-entered into the microbiome in order to, to be a player, if that makes sense. So, yeah, yeah. um, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And, and, and in, in some instances, let's say, for example, the red shank duke, that's uh, the, one of the, what, I, what I focused on or one of the species I focused on for my PhD. In that particular instance, this species eats primarily um, leaf material, and it eats such a complex diet. It's, that's probably one of the reasons they haven't been able to keep it in captivity very well because the diet's so complex, it's just almost impossible to, uh, to replicate. I, I like to use the example of that, let's say, versus a panda bear where – um, you know, we know ex exactly what they eat. And so, and so, and, you know, you might try to formulate a diet, but you would expect they're not going to do very well. And so what you, you, you grow, you grow their food, you know, you have these uh, farms to grow their food, but with right. some of these, some of these individuals that, you know, are in the rainforest and eating, you know, a hundred, 150 different types of, and many of which are not even known because if the species hasn't been studied, then that makes it complex. But I, I absolutely agree with you. In the case of um, one of the things that's interesting about marmosets specifically is that they're called gummivores. I mean, they're technically om omnivores in the sense that they eat uh, a, a wide range of food, just like us. But one of the things that's unique about them is that they actually eat gum. So they eat uh, from, uh, from trees. And so um, that's, that's, and that's likely uh, something that probably dramatically affects their microbiome. And that's something that we've actually already begin, begun to see. But yeah, I 100% agree. Um, 
posing a lot of good posing a lot of good uh, ideas and, and, and questions. So this is very thought provoking. I'm I'm almost thinking as I'm talking. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, good. That's excellent. Yeah. I mean, I would think that you know, what if you assume that everything affects your microbiome, and then your approach is to find the things that affect it most strongly and make it like a Pareto, you know, like an eighty twenty analysis of what affects it most strongly. And then focus on the things that affect it most strongly to gain insight or most weakly to gain insight. I don't know. You I know what if you go ahead pick a part of the of the creature you're looking at that has the you know the simplest microbiome by its nature, maybe not the gut because it's so complicated, and maybe by looking at the simplest part of the creature, I don't know, it's eyelash or something that has very few species there, maybe then you could figure out what happens with the host microbe interaction. Look at it in a simple way. I think yeah, I mean exactly. I think you're. I think you're. I think you're. Uh, you're nailing it there. And 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 you know, even I think another thing that's important, even if we're looking at the gut, let's say, I think the way that you, and that's why, um, let's say, let's say even with humans, that's why that's why it's difficult. Because if we think about, you know, if you were to write down what you eat every day, uh, I, you know, it would it would be astonishing how many different things most likely that people eat. But not even that. When you look, particularly in in Westernized society, when you look at the components of of what's in in in, in those foods, I mean, you know, it's it's a it's a laundry list of, of things, right? And so, trying to identify um, what's causing what is, is is difficult. That that's one of the what's one of I think the advantages of of of, of working in the lab is that. You know, we can not everything, of course, but we can control many things. So if we can do every single thing the same with, let's say, um, with a, a group of, of primates or, or mice or whatever, then we can start to then try to uh, try to try to define a difference that's meaningful because of the fact that everything else is kept static. Yeah. Well, very good. Uh, yeah, there's eight million more questions, but there's only so much I can do before we. Our brains explode. So uh, right, right, what, absolutely. So, what's the best way for people to get in contact? You know, with the lab or the institution, or to ask questions or see papers that you're putting out. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's Jonathan B. Clayton uh, on uh, on Google Scholar. So um, there, um, uh, another place is the uh, University of Nebraska at Omaha um, in the Department of Biology, and then at the University of Nebraska Lincoln, um, the Nebraska Food for Health Center. Um, is a is, is a place also where uh, a lot of that information I- exists. Um, an- another place is the Primate Microbiome Project. We'd love for people to, to check it out. And anybody that's interested, um, there's actually a, um, a link on there for, for an email link. So anyone that's interested, we, we'd love to hear from you with, with questions or um, if you're interested in, in collaboration, um, we're, we, we would love to talk to you. So um, my, uh, yeah, so I, that and, you know, um, I'm always open for people that are interested in checking out the lab that people want to, to work in the lab that are interested, you know, we encourage um, to, to contact me and, and see, uh, and see what, what we can, what we can do. Well, that's great. Well, Jonathan, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you very much. You're listening to the future tech podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. 
you may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.